Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Thank you for joining us for this installment of our program. We love having you. Um, As always, I think we have a really fascinating show uh, lined up for you. It is timely. We are going to be discussing something that just happened today. Um, So if you're listening to this uh, podcast in the future, um, this was recorded on the day that the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision, ruled that Philadelphia may not reject a Catholic organization, um, and that Catholic organization was potentially going to be rejected because they refused to work with uh, same-sex couples, even if the same-sex couple is married. Um, they also refused to work with um, non-married um, heterosexual couples, Um, and the uh, screening process is for those couples to become foster parents. Um, We're going to be discussing that ruling uh, and uncoupling it uh, uh, to a certain extent. We're also going to take a a unique look at uh, Supreme Court decisions and um, cultural progress and things that have happened for the LGBT community in terms of, quote-unquote, our dignity. We have um, an esteemed couple of authors on, Steph, Steph, Stephen M. Engel and Timothy S. Lyle. They have written a book called Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. They're, the take of the book is exploring how dignity is deployed by different authorities in different ways and how um, that is often done to marginalize, restrain, and shame members of the LGBT communities, even when the decisions seem to come down in, quote, unquote, our favor. Um, so that, that will be uh, a fascinating thing. Um, and we look forward to talking to them both on uh, the decision today as well as their book. Uh, with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Brody Levesque, my esteemed uh, co-host and the editor of the L.A. Blade, to the show. Welcome, Brody. Hey, Rob. Well, as you said, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling Thursday in a unanimous 9-0, to zero, siding with the Catholic Social Services Agency, which is a Catholic social services organization that had sued the city of Philadelphia after the city excluded it from a foster care program due to the organization's refusal to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. Immediate reaction from some LGBTQI groups and individuals was dismay, while others viewed the decision as a relief. Shannon Minter, the legal director for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, told me in a phone call today that the ruling was exceedingly narrow. It's aimed at a section of the contract by the city, and more importantly, it was not a ruling that would be citable in future litigation in terms of an anti-LGBTQ bias. So in other words, it's not going to be pulled out of you know the hat at 3 a.m. in the middle of a case for a lower court and cited 
uh, in the district or circuit court levels, fortunately. Uh, Shannon right. also pointed out to me that this ruling avoids a situation that would have overruled or overturned uh, a 1990 SCOTUS ruling, uh, which is basically uh, Employment Division of uh, HR of Oregon versus Smith. That particular ruling was authored by uh, then-Associate U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia, and that would have made it more difficult for religious people and groups to secure exemptions from generally applicable laws governing anti-discrimination. Now, the reason that's important is that that has been the legal standard for SCOTUS since Scalia authored the, uh, that particular decision back in 1990. There is other case law, obviously, that could be cited past that. But as Shannon pointed out to me, Smith has become the standard of which most things are applicable. And the reason that's kind of interesting uh, is because yesterday uh, in Denver, Colorado, or excuse me, uh, Tuesday in Denver, Colorado, a Colorado district court judge ruled against uh, the baker from Masterpiece Cake Bake Shop who had refused to bake uh, a cake for a same-sex wedding, and he had won a very neural win at SCOTUS in a partial victory in his case two years ago. Okay. Um, however, in this go-around, the district court judge said that Phillips had, in fact, violated the anti-discrimination law, citing the fact that at issue was a product, not a freedom of speech or expression. But the judge did note uh, in his uh, ruling against Phillips, citing the high court decision two years ago, which in turn cited Smith as the basis. So that's kind of where the lay of the land is. And I'm sure since we actually have a constitutional lawyer uh, and scholar on deck, we could probably get a better explanation than this poor old right. political reporter's thumbnail sketch of it. <laughs> Well, no, um, yeah, and there, there are things that you said that I think are, are important in looking at this, um, and I really am, uh, appreciate Shannon's input on that, because this actually is a positive given the, the climate of the court and who is sitting on it. And the three justices who did not join the majority in the majority opinion are three that basically were – leaning towards that disruption of that Smith ruling. Um, what's really kind of fascinating is that um, the Chief Justice, um, by corralling the three liberal um, justices and Barrett and um, uh, um, uh, Kavanaugh, sort of created this more middle ground group um, in this ruling. Um, the thing about the ruling that is, is also fascinating is that they, they uh, ruled against it based on the exceptions that are written into the statute in Philadelphia that allows some discrimination um, in the process, in the foster care process. And the majority of that discrimination happens with the placement of kids with authorized families. So it's not in the same place where the Catholic uh, organization uh, was 
was using its discrimination, which was who gets to be foster care parents. But in sort of recognizing that, and I'm speaking to this now from the experience of being a foster care parent, it is probably the area of greater concern because the state of Philadelphia does need to be able to take kids, maybe kids who, for example, identify as LGBTQ and have the discrimination to say, okay, these Catholic families coming up from this organization may not qualify for this child. They're not right for this child. Um, and this ruling does not prevent them from doing that. Um, also to note that there have actually not been any LGBTQ couples who have attempted to go through this Catholic organization and been rejected. This is, um, they, they have other ways of being qualified in Philadelphia to be foster care parents. So just, just well, to give a little environment. Yeah, I mean, it's, the other context to it too is, is that the, the, the right and the religious extremists had tried to frame this in the context of a conversation uh, of religious liberty. There was a noted defiance and dissent uh, from the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, listed anti-LGBTQ hate group, uh, the Family Research Council, which released this tweet earlier this morning. I'm quoting FRC. Religious liberty, the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs is an inherent human right. And that's a direct shot at the high court. And again, as Shannon pointed out, this was so narrowly defined down to one clause within a contract within the city structure. And as uh, one of the justices uh, noted, uh, writing uh, in concurrence, but at the same time making note of the fact, and I, I thought this was kind of interesting because if you read the if you read the ruling, um, it actually says this. I think it's kind of kind of to me it's kind of amusing, but. You know, it's because it's such a narrow decision and because it's only looking at one structure of it. All right. Um, Justice Alito noted this, and this is to put this in context in writing in a concurrent. And he did this somewhat sarcastically, quote, and this is Justice Alito. This decision might as well be written on dissolving paper sold in magic shops. The city has been adamant about pressuring CSS to give in. And if the city wants to get around today's decision, it can simply eliminate the never-used exemption power. If it does that, then poof, today's decision will vanish, and the parties will be right back where they started. And that was Justice uh, Alito. So as Shannon pointed out to me, and, and I guess we'll uh, get a little bit further input from our constitutional scholar here in a minute, but that's kind of where we're at with it. So... In the win and lose column, most people are chalking this one up as a win because the court simply kicked a can down the road that they didn't want to go anywhere near. Well, with that, let's go ahead and bring on our guests. And by the way, um, the, um, some of the things that they discuss in the book is a fascinating take on exactly what looks like a win and what doesn't, and sometimes what seems like a win for LGBTQ rights can be a non-win um, in the case of dignity. And uh, so we're going to get into that with, with uh, our folks here. Um, and with that, I'd like to welcome to the show um, Stephen and 
and sorry, <laughs> uh, Stephen and Timothy. Uh, little little technical glitch there, folks. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, thanks for having us. Absolutely, and, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. thanks. Yeah, no, our pleasure is ours. Um, uh, Stephen, let's talk, start with you because uh, you are the aforementioned uh, constitutional expert that uh, Brody alluded to. Uh, before we get into dignity, what, what are your thoughts on today's ruling? Yeah, so I think uh, Brody did a really excellent summary, not only of the facts of the case and the majority holding written by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, but also sort of the sentiment around this, right? Um, first, that the, the potential outcomes in this case could have been far worse for um, our LGBTQ plus community. And second, that the decision um, that is a nine to zero decision um, is probably unanimous because it is so narrow, right? Uh, Roberts uh, probably did something very strategic here, which is right, an exceptionally narrow case that avoids overturning Oregon v. Smith, that importantly and we can talk about this more if, if you're interested, importantly distinguishes um, adoption from public accommodation. So importantly distinguishes some of the questions at issue in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision and leaves open questions of how and whether public accommodation laws might treat LGBTQ plus individuals equally, leaves that for another day. And so if you wanted to see kind of what the nightmare scenario might have been for our community, you could read the Alito concurrence, uh, which I think leans into what, you know, is the idea of overturning Oregon v. Smith um, and allowing for religious-based uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ community to go forward. So I think ultimately I would agree that the decision is written a way to have exceptionally little presidential value and also just sort of leaves unanswered these fundamental conflicts between First Amendment expression and commands of 14th Amendment equal treatment that were, that were at issue in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, which, are, which were left unanswered in that decision, too. So there's a lot of kind of punting and narrow decision-making that's going on in this decision. Right. Uh, I, I kind of want to put this in frame of the theme of your book, uh, Disrupting Dignity. Yeah. Um, and uh, we probably should, before we even get into that, have you guys define the concept of dignity. Um, and it is, you present it in the book in a very complex way. Um, so let me open this to both of you. What is dignity? I, I'll get started. Uh, this is Timothy here. You know, th that's a kind of central question that uh, would, would seemingly have a, a simple answer, um, but but certainly doesn't. And you know, of course, we we went off you know for some 300 plus pages trying to explore the idea. Um, you know, we often tell our students, you know, that your your vocabulary matters, your concepts matter. Um, and we actually argue that the word itself doesn't have a, a very stable meaning, um, and we don't to attempt to provide it with any either. Um, instead, as you noted in your intro, we look at uh, how the word is used by different authorities in different ways at different times uh, so that its, meaning, its meanings are highly contextual. Um, you know, people often think of dignity as this, this kind of state of being, right, to be dignified or to have dignity. But we actually try to shift that conversation a little bit and try to think about it as a doing, as an action. 
Um, and so we look at the ways in which dignity has been deployed um, and, and look at how and by whom uh, that action is taken and for what purpose. Um, and specifically look at it uh, politically, culturally, legally, um, and, and ask how politicians and judges and creators, creators of culture uh, do specific work when they name something as having dignity or being dignified. Um, and we argue it ultimately becomes an exercise of power. Yeah, and, yep. and I would add there with just connection to today's decision, right, the word dignity is actually mentioned only once in the Roberts ruling for the, the court, and I think it's mentioned once also in the Alito concurrence. And it comes up in the Roberts decision as basically a quote from Justice Kennedy in the Masterpiece decision where it affirms the fundamental dignity of gays and lesbians um, in that decision. And then Alito quotes it to affirm the dignity of religious believers who might object to same-sex marriage as stated in the Obergefell decision. And I think the way that dignity is used there highlights one of the critiques that we make, which is that reliance on dignity um, is, is it, dignity is not a good metric by which to arbitrate competing rights claims, right? What you're asking right. ultimately then becomes whose dignity matters more, the dignity of the religious believer or the dignity of the LGBTQ identified individual who wants to live free from discrimination, right? And if everybody has dignity, I don't know if we want to get into a balancing act with dignity at the center. And yet that's where a lot of the Supreme Court decisions about LGBTQ rights, which are rhetorically beautiful. And I think Timothy and I are very careful to say, you know, we recognize how important recognition of our dignity is, but it doesn't work into some extent as a legal standard. Right. No, absolutely. absolutely. If I can, I just, I want to interject here for a minute, Rob, if you don't mind. Counselor, when you're looking directly at that, and let's frame that in the context of legal for our listeners, you know, there is a, there is a legal distinction okay, that is had between the common use or common language, such, I, such as what I would use as a journalist, and what you would see in a written opinion, be it in a district, circuit, or a SCOTUS decision. Could you explain a little bit more about, you know, the metrics and, and, and kind of that? Because I don't think a lot of people understand that there is actually a, kind of a, almost a subset you know, narrow definition even to the word dignity that's strictly in a legal sense as opposed to a common use. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge that a little bit. I, I think you're right in that there's an aspiration for a narrow legal understanding of dignity. And I want to clarify that I'm a professor of political science and I'm not a lawyer by training. But what I will say is that when you look at, say, the, the SCOTUS decisions, uh, that use uh -huh. dignity in the context of LGBTQ rights. A number of legal scholars have pointed out that in some sense, right, if you look at the Lawrence decision, right, dignity is used in the, to mean this idea about respect for individual autonomy, individual choice, right? I have to respect your choice about how you want to live out and express your love to another individual, even if I might disagree with it, right? And, and we have, uh, as Kennedy writes, the dignity... Uh, to engage in um, same-sex intimacy 
uh, without, or, you know, without losing our dignity, right? We have the freedom to do that. That's what the, the um, Lawrence decision stands for. But a number of legal scholars have pointed out that Kennedy kind of sloppily uses dignity in the marriage decisions in a very different way. So in Lawrence, he uses it as respect for individual choice. But in the marriage decisions, he talks about how the state, by recognizing a same-sex marriage, confer a dignity upon the couple, right? And, and, and they do so because that couple is behaving in a way that the state government approves of. And in this sense, a number of legal scholars have pointed out that that's actually not respect. That's the idea of dignity as respectability, that you're living up to a standard that's valued by others, right? And so once you get mm -hmm. others valuing it, um, you're actually using dignity in a way that actually could, right, rather than in power. And so what we're trying to do in the book is really look at how dignity is deployed, as Timothy pointed out, by different authorities. And in the case of the Supreme Court, they're using the same word in the same line of LGBTQ jurisprudence but they actually mean two very different things, respect or respectability. And they're not just different. They could actually operate to be the polar opposites of one another. Okay, Professor. I, I could see that. Rob? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just want to make a sideline comment that I think it is sort of either interesting and or poetic that one of the major organizations that is made up of um, LGBTQ Catholics who fight for, for their, their – um, legitimacy within the church is called dignity <laughs> that's the yep. name of the organization um i Stephen, i also wanted to get your feel uh we, you know we talked about the the this case that came down today and how it is you know because it was so muted and strategically um uh orchestrated that it is essentially a win is it a win for dignity however in your opinion well, I think in some sense, right, again, the question is, what do we mean by the term? And in the legal arena, right, I guess I would be one of those people who would argue to be skeptical of the use of dignity um, as, a, as a functional legal concept. And I think in the book, Timothy and I make this argument because while we acknowledge that it's a rhetorically beautiful concept, right, and I think you would be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't want to be recognized as dignified or recognized as having dignity. The court has used it in really problematic ways. You know, one way is that they use the same word to mean two potentially diametrically opposed things. The other thing that we try to point out is that LGBTQ rights uh, have been litigated at the Supreme Court in a way that is very different than, say, racial discrimination claims or sex and gender discrimination claims, right? That, those cases tend to fall under what we call scrutiny doctrine. Um, and the LGBTQ cases have really not engaged scrutiny doctrine. And one of the questions that we engage in the book is why this divergence? And what we end up arguing is that dignity can be put to antithetical ends, that this idea that's really developed in the context of uh, progressive LGBTQ rights outcomes or decisions has already been used to limit uh, racial equity claims um, and has already been used to curb abortion access. 
And so we need to treat dignity um, as not an unqualified good. We need to be skeptical because it can be used uh, to achieve uh, legal outcomes that I think legal progressives would be very worried about. Right, right. Um, what What is the scrutiny uh, clauses you were talking about? Um, that yeah, sure. Yeah, so... Um, so uh, scrutiny is a doctrine that has been developed over the course of sort of the early, mid to late 20th century. And it's a particular way of reading um, or of, of, of approaching uh, discrimination claims. So um, it comes out of a very famous footnote in, um, in Supreme Court decisions known as the Caroline Products case. And it basically is the idea that the court will apply a higher level of scrutiny. They will be more suspicious of a law if, for example, a law seems to be targeted against what they call a discrete and insular class of people, right? So if a law unfairly or seems to uh, target a group of people that didn't seem to have a voice in the making of the law. And so that was transformed into what we call suspect class doctrine which is just the idea that a suspect class is a particular group of people that have faced a history of discrimination, a history of political powerlessness, and that this might be grounded in what we call an immutable characteristic. And so if a law is targeting a suspect class, then it would only stand to be constitutional if it withstands what's called strict scrutiny, meaning that the law must be narrowly tailored to achieve a really, really important objective. Right? It's the only way to achieve this important objective is to make this kind of distinction among people. Otherwise, the law violates um, some principle of equality. And so that's been used uh, to evaluate um, uh, racial equality claims, and it's been used to evaluate uh, gender equality claims. But it has not been used to evaluate um, LGBTQ equality claims. And what you see over the course of the 20th century as the Supreme Court becomes more conservative with more Republican-appointed justices is that this doctrine gets transformed very slowly to um, basically decontextualize the history so that the court doesn't need to pay attention to questions about histories of discrimination of particular groups. Uh, doesn't have to pay attention to histories of political powerlessness, and instead starts making these claims about uh, neutrally applicable principles of equality, or in fact, what we argue, dignity, right? Dignity becomes mm -hmm. this neutral, universal principle, right? And then we don't have to attend to the histories of discrimination that LGBTQ people have faced, right? And so then the dignity claim of the religious believer is just as important as the dignity claim of the LGBTQ person. And because it's a universal value to which we all aspire, we have, again, no way to arbitrate the two claims. Right, right. That is fascinating. I, I want to switch gears with you guys a little bit and go into some of the things that you go into detail in the book. Um, one of the areas that um, you talk about um, and you go into detail on is um, the bathhouse environment, and um, starting with the the AIDS um, uh, era and the immediate scrutiny that was uh, applied to the the bathhouses and and that environment and the um, closure of them. Um, can you guys go into that a little bit and how that applies to the dignity concept? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, this, this is Timothy here. We, we actually begin the book there and begin our, our exploration of dignity in that sort of pivotal moment of the, the early AIDS crisis uh, because we wanted to look at a moment, right, where we took a turn. Um, we're not necessarily looking for the moment where we, we just started to rely on, on dignity, but uh, there's a really important one, a generative one. And so we turn to this particular episode of Queer History to look at the, the moment in which dignity sort of proved its most seductive um, and in which it was used by the state um, in, in really important ways. I mean, during this, this early time of this vulnerable time, really, of uncertainty and increasing death tolls, uh, state authorities explicitly dehumanize and infantilize and abandon uh, queer communities, um, and, and more than that, created a narrative of blame for supposedly undignified behavior. Um, and so, you know, the state in this moment uh, of confusion and loss and, and tragedy and danger uh, really kind of delivered what we, what we kind of call an ultimatum. You know, it was, it was really sort of be dignified or die. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of look at uh, in our exploration um, you know, what has sort of compelled us to move in this direction um, and where were we and, and, you know, why did we turn and what have we perhaps lost in the process? Um, and so the bathhouse has become this really interesting space for us to tackle that question because in the shuttering of them, uh, there were particular queer ways of being in the world, queer logics, uh, you know, whether it relates to, you know, how we interact with time or space or how we form kinship bonds and relationships. Um, all of those things were, were really sort of called into question, and, and we, we, we see a, a kind of shift in uh, the, the way that we, you know, begin to world make as, as queer communities. Uh, so that space was a really important moment for us to kind of look at uh, why this turn and why has it been so consequential um, and really, how did it kind of move from dignity, move from a kind of survival tactic uh, in a very, you know, vulnerable time to a kind of ideology that, you know, we've, we've never really kind of moved past, um, much to uh, some of the chagrin of, of kind of folks who want to return to some of those uh, queer ways of being in the, the 70s and 80s. Right. And I do remember one of the things at the time that, that is sort of an offshoot of what, what you're talking about was that a lot of the health directives um, with, I know a lot of my peers and uh, people that were, were around the community, um, it, it caused us to not believe what we were being told. In other words, it was just too convenient to, um, you know, we were being shamed for, quote unquote our behavior or, or the environment that we had, et cetera. And it was like it, it just too you know, this just fit too much into that that oppression narrative. Um and there were people who reacted, you know, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway because um you know, screw them kind of thing. Um can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the the state had not inspired a lot of trust on the part of queer people, right? I mean, when you think about the criminalization of, of same-sex, you know, intimacy, when you think about the, uh, you know, the kind of diseasing of, of our identities in general, um, when you think about the spaces that we that we adopted as communal spaces being targeted well before the, the AIDS crisis, right, being seen as 
as a, a kind of uh, hedonistic dens or blights on, on neighborhood property values and kind of moral health of the community. Um, all of these things were happening before the virus, and, and it was such a, a politicized virus um, with such gross uh, neglect and incompetence uh, on, the, on the part of the state that uh, lots of queer folks were, you know, uh, highly suspicious about the information they were receiving. And, and also, you know, I think it's important to remember, especially for folks who didn't live in that era or aren't familiar with that history, is that the information was extraordinarily confusing uh, and conflicting. And mm -hmm. uh, there was so much stigma sort of being wrapped in uh, the, the, the public health conversation uh, that, it, it, you know, it really was a dizzying, you know, and confusing and hurtful period. Um, and and I, I think you're absolutely right that, that you know, many folks in the community uh, responded in very different ways, depending on how they reacted to, to those specifics. So, I mean, I think above all, we see the, the dangers of politicizing public health, which is something that we, that we go into in the first part of the book. Right. And yeah, and it, it, at the time and in, in that period, one of the things that was, I don't know, has ever been really addressed on, on the effect of the community is linking your sexuality, which you were already on, on the most part hiding because a lot of the, the, the people who were affected by AIDS were closeted and not out. I mean, that was the way of the, of the time. And um, then not only, so you not only have the secret sexuality um, part of your life, but then to tie your sexuality with the, the, um, concept of of dying for it and the shame over that and um, plus the the horrific effect of the disease itself it was not something that afforded dignity to those who had it um, mm -hmm. and so I mean it was it was a very toxic um, combination of elements that that went into it so you know the community itself then. Um, you know, fought for AIDS, um, research, fought for AIDS, um, uh, dignity and, and other, other things like that. Then in the 90s up came marriage equality as kind of the grassroots issue. Um, you guys talked about this in the book um, as well in terms of the sort of disrupting dignity, the, the you know, rethinking the strides with marriage equality on what, what was actually being won and whether it um, just made straight the default in terms of cultural concepts. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. So I think uh, the, the sort of the bathhouse closures of the 1980s and um, same-sex marriage uh, as it evolved in the 90s, but certainly over the course of the early 2000s and 2010s, are kind of the bookends of the book, right? Um, and one of the reasons is because the AIDS-HIV crisis, as historian George Chauncey has pointed out, kind of highlighted the vulnerabilities uh, that we had in terms of um, our relationships not being recognized by the state and not having access to things like inheritance and transfer of property because the state didn't recognize our partnerships, right? So there's a, a clear through line between the HIV AIDS crisis and how same-sex marriage became one of the crucial issues of our communities. All that being said is 
one of the things we try to look at is when we make uh, marriage one of the default or defining issues, um, who's left out of that? Um, and what are we normalizing? Uh, what kinds of um, behaviors, world-making practices are we normalizing as sort of privileged within our own LGBTQ community? And one of the things that we try to do, um, and I think Timothy does really exceptionally well, is then use pop culture to explore that particular issue. And we particularly latch on to a film that came out in 2018, uh, Love, Simon, which is based on the young adult novel by Becky Albertalli. Uh, I think it's called um, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda. Um, and the tagline of that film is, uh, isn't straight still the default? And um, we question whether the, the film is actually reinforcing kind of a cultural straightness as the default, even as it's trying to at least at the level of rhetoric, challenge it. And I guess I'll turn to, to Timothy to carry that, that analysis forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, assuming that, that, Rob, you want to go in that direction. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I was the, just about to ask culture. about Love, Simon itself. Yeah, exactly. No, okay. that was the, the great segue. <laughs> segue I didn't have cool, to make. Cool. Stephen made it for me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, well, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, it's, it's part two of, of the book, um, and, and in the context of, of pop culture, we do turn to uh, two cultural productions that actually came out in the same year, in 2018, uh, Love, Simon, the film, and FX's series, Pose. Um, and we, we put these, these two texts in conversation um, in part because they offer two very distinct visions of, of dignity in pop culture, um, that is really uh, uh, illustrative for us to, to, to kind of have the conversation we want to. And, and Love, Simon kind of becomes this clear example of maintaining respectability by sort of, you know, refusing any kind of uh, queer behavior that's been coded as excessive. Uh, Simon, the, the protagonist at one point, literally says, not that gay, uh, in a kind of critical uh, moment of his own self-reflection. And in the film, we sort of see this, this reduction of, of queer identity uh, down to a sexual object choice. Um, and, and in so doing, there's this kind of refusal to engage with or, or even acknowledge uh, collective queer histories or queer subcultures or queer vernaculars. Um, and there's this kind of papering over of, of persisting inequalities and inequities through a kind of, it's almost like a, you know, a kind of superficial progress narrative. Um, you know, they, they threw some, some uh, multicultural casting in the mix, threw some, uh, some really kind of misleading taglines, like, is, you know, uh, why is straight the default? You know, all of these, these kind of gestures that point to this really progressive uh, film, but, but what we ultimately see is that, that the film kind of refuses to engage with progressive politics um, and kind of falls victim to, uh, I guess, some of those marketplace-ready representations that, you know, are kind of offer us a, a weird just-like-you narrative uh, that, that at its heart is seeking to minimize difference um, and to, to cater to the needs and wants of of mainstream audiences, which unfortunately oftentimes contorts queer lives. Um, and as a counterexample, uh, FX Pose, uh, we argue, sort of tells a very different story, um, one that, that centers 
queer audiences and queer experiences and sort of challenges that kind of just like you narrative and, and kind of swims in queer excess and, and swims in, in a kind of particularity that's really concerned with history and concerned with confronting power directly um, and, and, and really specifically refusing to tone down anything that would make mainstream audiences uncomfortable and, and centering black and queer trans communities uh, who've often been left out of these histories that, we, that we've spent a lot of time talking about today so far. Yeah, it poses, poses um, hugely landmark, um, not only for pushing kind of the, the sensibilities of, of um, you know, mainstream culture and establishing the um you know the the pose culture if you will but also that 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 society and that that um new sense of family that is projected in pose the houses and um plus just culturally to have productions that have so much transgender talent behind the scenes in front of the camera um and to me that representation is hugely important because it is not extreme in a way. I mean, it, and this is sort of the, I guess the irony to, I think what you were saying, Timothy, is that when I look at the characters in Pose, I don't see them as all that other. Um, I see them as, as very tangible, human, relatable um, people that, um, you know, and I have a lot of transgender friends, so it's that that may be part of it. But I, I think even people who didn't, it 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 really brings these people into this tangible plane. Um, two shows I wanted to ask you is about, even though you don't, I don't think touch on either one of these in the book. Um, one's going back is Will and Grace. When it hit the airwaves, um, it was kind of surprising that it became popular because. The Ellen Show, where she had come out and and you know came out as as lesbian and and then you know the show kind of quickly nosedived. Then Will and Grace hit the scene and um, were were popular anyway. Um, and one of the things that has been talked about in terms of that show is that there is actually this little bit of a you know behind the scenes homophobia about the jokes and the humor throughout the show, and that kind of appealed to those who are critical of gay people as well, and that kind of added to its popularity. And the other show I want to ask you guys about in terms of its impact is uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, which, to your point, throws everything to the extreme. It is completely not straight. It is completely gender-bending and and in your face in terms of masculinity and those kind of concepts. Um, how do they play in those pieces play into the cultural landscape of dignity? Yeah. So this is Steve. Um, I might take the Will and Grace question first. Um, and I guess what I would say, especially in, its con- in the contrast to the Ellen show, a couple of key differences um, one, Ellen had come out, right, both on the show and in real life. Um, the actor playing Will Truman um, is uh, a straight man. Um, and at the time, the actor playing Jack was also identified as a straight man. Um, to your point, Will and Grace 
played for laughs on classic um, uh, LGBTQ stereotypes, um, which I think both played into the humor, but also kind of lowered, um, uh, played into those who might not, who might be watching, who are not necessarily always sympathetic to LGBTQ um, concerns. And then I actually just think that there's probably some level of misogyny at play here in the 1990s, right? That we have a show that ultimately um, was canceled that centered a uh, cisgender identified lesbian uh, versus a show that centered, uh, by contrast, a very upper class, well-to-do, professional, white, cisgender male in the character of Will Truman. Um, and that, and for us, that directly links to dignity because Will Truman's character is dignified in the same ways um, that we think that uh, Simon's character might be dignified, right? Uh, it centers dignity here, centers both restraint and responsibility, but it also plays to norms that um, would highlight cisgender identity, whiteness, and a particular class privilege. Um, that we think are evident. And those are things all that, that pose in presenting an alternative conception of dignity that we try to unearth and expose really challenge those, those norms or dignity as linked to uh, those ideas of whiteness and class privilege and restraint and responsibility. Um, in, in pose, dignity is about excess and community and more and fighting for oneself, but always fighting for oneself within community. So there's that rejection of the individualistic uh, impulse that we see in some of the other uh, pop culture. Yeah, I mean, and I think in, in the... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ralph. No, no, go ahead. I was going to move to you. Yeah, I, I mean, Drag Race is, is interesting. I, I have, uh, what are we on now, season 35, it seems like. Uh, <laughs> spin-off, all-stars for all-stars. Um, you know, I mean, it, 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 I think the show has evolved a lot, um, you know, and I, I think that it has uh, certainly, uh, you know, kind of taken the, the more, you know, subcultural practice of, of, of drag and kind of, put it into the spotlight. I think it's also created some really interesting opportunities for, for queer artists um, to make careers that were, you know, kind of inconceivable um, before, before Drag Race sort of gained the, the cultural attraction that it has. Um, I do, though, kind of align myself with, with some of the critics of Drag Race who are a little concerned uh, that the main, you know, audience has shifted a bit um, and that the show has become a bit more produced um, and the, the kind of, uh, I guess some of the, the, the byproducts of that is that, that, that they feel like the show is defanged a little bit. Um, it's becoming uh, a bit more uh, or a bit not hesitant to talk about power, but, but you know, the, RuPaul kind of has this... Uh, this this very safe narrative of you know everybody say love and you know we're all in this together and uh, the kind of histories that 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 she share shares are, are ones that you know aren't really don't really get into the details right that just kind of offer us like oh Stonewall happened you know 1969 and and a lot of uh, what folks are missing from some of the earlier uh, parts of the show 
is all the community building that we saw backstage with the contestants, all of the, uh, all of the, the kind of time. You know, we talk a lot about how narrative time is, is allotted in these productions and kind of where they choose to focus. Um, and Drag Race used to spend a lot of time with the contestants backstage just sort of kikiing and gossiping and, you know, sort of talking about just sort of queer ways of being in the world. And, and a lot of that time has sort of been replaced by advertisements and, and kind of really neat sound bites uh, and um, really sort of like <laughs> kind of take, pick the queer trauma that we want to focus on in this episode and, you know, tell a really sad story for like, you know, three or four minutes about one of the contestants. And, and, it, and it really, you know, kind of begins to feel like uh, queer audiences are no longer the primary uh, demographic for, for Drag Race. Um, and shows like Dragula, you know, are kind of emerging uh, as, a, as, a, as a counter narrative to Drag Race to kind of bring us back uh, to that edginess, bring us back to kind of that politicized drag that folks feel like RuPaul may be getting further and further away from as, as she rises in success and collects her Emmys. Um, right. I, I, the last thing that I would say, I guess, is the, the, the looking at casting um, in that show and the kind of uh, who gets to be on Drag Race, you know, in terms of their gender identity and expression. And I'm really interested to see where the show goes. Um, you know, we, we just recently had, uh, got Mick, a trans, uh, a trans exactly. guy, you know, on as, uh, as one of the final four. Um, and, and so I do think that Drag Race is, is, is kind of starting to respond to the criticisms uh, of its uh, casting policies and, and sort of the inclusion critique that has been kind of thrown in RuPaul's direction. Um, but it, I think it remains to be seen, you know, just how much the show is willing to move from that kind of earlier vision that RuPaul had of what constitutes a drag superstar. So uh, my ears and eyes are open, and I'm, I'm curious to see what, what happens. The impact is undeniable for sure. Right, right. No, thanks for the, for the, the, um, the thoughts and, and perspective on that. Um, I want to switch with uh, you guys on one other area of people that you talk about in the book, um, and that's kind of in the political realm. Um, and you talk about uh, some of Hillary Clinton's positioning and how they were not particularly helpful in, in the, the means of dignity. And I, I, I guess I want to focus that on the whole Clinton-esque kind of brand of, or of uh, politics where it was that middle of the road trying to move the needle forward in different issues um, with strategy to get it moving forward but at the same time doing it without really embracing um, LGBTQ people. Um, uh, yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton in the context of an apology that she makes um, in the wake of Nancy Reagan's funeral. Um, uh, at the funeral, she, she says something to the effect of we forget how – the Reagans were at the forefront of of the uh, AIDS crisis and and bringing resources to that, and mm. it was just a tremendous misstatement of history um, and a real disservice to those in the community who were actively protesting the Reagan administration, actually doing the work of bringing attention and bringing resources to the crisis. 
And so we look at how she apologizes and how she issues a first apology, how that is um, uh, insufficient. And then we look at her second apology, uh, which then is in the context of the 2016 election, sort of accepted by lots of people in the community. And then there's this conversation of let's move on because we're in the context of a presidential election and, and we want to support Clinton over Trump. And I think what we're looking there is looking at how apology is one action that might be taken if we do, as Timothy mentioned at the start of the show, if we do dignity differently, if we think of dignity as an action or, um, or a, a set of actions that might be guided by a principle of rooting out stigma, what kinds of actions might follow? Um, and we look at apology as one possible action and then look at types of apologies and where they might fall short. And so we look at Hillary's apology as an example of where things fall short. I just want to add, you know, the Clintons, um, to your point, you know, going back to the, the Bill Clinton's presidency in the 90s, are, it's, it's a really troubling uh, and yet kind of, you know, interesting moment because we're coming off of 12 years of Republican presidencies that have been openly hostile to the community. Um, and we get the first time a Democratic president who's going to, aside from, a, uh, from Jimmy Carter, who met with members of the community once or twice, uh, a, a presidential campaign that's openly courting the LGBTQ vote um, and that makes one of its first policy initiatives to be lifting the military ban. Obviously, that fails. We end up getting don't ask, don't tell um, as a consequence. But it's a really interesting question where the Clinton, Bill Clinton's trying to thread this needle of trying to court the LGBTQ community and kind of capture their vote within the Democratic Party and then do things that are really openly hostile to the LGBTQ community, right? The don't ask, don't tell policy, signing um, the Defense of Marriage Act, Right. And so there's really this uh, balancing that I think is just purely electorally motivated that's going on with with President Bill Clinton. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot more. I wish we had time to go into all of it because it, it is interesting. I, I do want to ask you guys one other thing on the culture today of sort of the we're in a place where progressively there's a lot of looking back and holding people accountable for statements and thoughts and things of where they were at different points in time um, and kind of their evolutionary process. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that and the quote unquote cancel culture? Oh, ending with a, with a, with a tough question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, no softball there, right? I, yeah, I think that I, I call it accountability culture. You know, I, I think we're we're certainly in a in a space where um, we are are reckoning or or starting to reckon with the past, um, starting to to reckon with you know histories of of inequity. Um, I, I think also just because of the way that we've been uh, receiving information, you know, over the past several decades, like the archive is really different, you know, and, and the way that we're transmitting information is really different. Uh, that's kind of amplifying a lot of these conversations. 
Um, I, I certainly think uh, the accountability piece is really important, um, especially in this kind of neoliberal culture that wants to dehistoricize everything and decontextualize everything and privatize everything. Um, but I also do think it's important that we uh, make room for growth and transformation. Um, and, you know, one thing that Steve and I try to do in, in this book in particular um, is to sort of uh, look at the pros and cons, right? Look at the potential opportunities of certain strategies and look at their potential liabilities. Um, and I think that we can apply a sort of both and kind of uh, approach to, to this last question. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of value in holding folks accountable, but I think there's also a lot of uh, a lot of uh, moments to be wary of, uh, of of just sort of immediately dismissing the opportunity for for transformation um, and healing and uh, togetherness. So you know, I, I don't necessarily know how we resolve those two, but I, I do think it's really important that uh, with with every moment of accountability, we also sort of you know take a look at at any potential uh, value as well. I don't know, Steve, Excellent. if you want to add anything to that. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, and I do want to get this part in. How do people get the book, Disrupting Dignity? So it is available at, of course, NYU Press website. It's available at Amazon. But we are really uh, hoping that people will go to their independent bookstore, order it through them. Um, I would also uh, recommend, and I know Timothy has already done some work with some bookstores in New York City where he is, uh, if, if you have, know of a queer-owned or, or BIPOC-owned uh, independent bookstore, uh, it's readily available, and, and, and they, they should be able to order it for you. Excellent point, and thank you so much. So, folks, go out and get this book. It is fascinating. It is um, a really intriguing read. Um, and, and you definitely, you definitely want to take part of it. It's very thought-provoking and important um, because a lot of this stuff is coming down and this kind of um, analysis and thought um, I, I think is important for moving us forward. I want to thank both our guests for joining us today. Thank you both for coming on. Um, very appreciated and um, great talk today. I want to thank Brody, as always, for his work on this show and as the editor of the LA Blade, uh, please do check out the LA Blade online. Um, always a fascinating uh, periodical and uh, uh, definitely needs your support and um, you will be all the better for supporting it. Uh, for us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week with another absolutely earth-shattering, fascinating show of which I have no idea what it will be at this point. But I can guarantee that it will be all of those adjectives regardless. Um, for Brody and myself, um, thank you so much. Ask your friends to subscribe to our podcast, and we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 